come this Lord's Day, continue in our study on the series, Put Not Your Trust in Princes. We've spoken of how Samuel warned that the people's sin would destroy the people and their king, and thus the people end up destroying all the institutions they have constructed to try to suppress the consequences of sin in their society. We've seen how Saul's sin provoked the people to sin, and the people's sin provoked Saul to sin. Saul disobeyed God's commandments to appease his people, and God rejected him as king over Israel. Saul and his people were entangled in each other's sin, showing the truth of God's word. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, and evil associations corrupt good conduct. But the book of Hebrews describes Jesus, our King, as holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was never polluted by the sin of His people whom He had saved. The sins of the Lord's people could not pollute Jesus or tempt Him to disobedience or cause Him to stumble or morally soil Himself in any way. It is crucial that we always keep in mind this stark distinction between our leaders and our Savior, between our earthly institutions and Jesus Christ. We ultimately destroy by our sin our own institutions and leaders, but we can never destroy by our sin our blessed Redeemer. There are numerous examples in Christ's earthly ministry that underline this point, both as to ceremonial uncleanness and moral impurity. When a leper came to Jesus and worshipped Him, He said, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus was moved with compassion and touched the poor man and replied, I will, be thou clean. Under the law of Moses, anyone who touched a leper was made unclean, but not so with Jesus. Those whom He touched with healing power were made clean instead. Jesus could heal unclean persons and not be polluted in any way. Instead, He purified them. Who can forget the beautiful incident of the woman polluted by an issue of blood? In faith she touched the hem of Christ's garment and was healed immediately. Under the law, anyone and everything she touched would also be made unclean, but not our Lord Jesus. He could never be polluted by the touch of a poor, helpless woman who trusted in Him. Rather than being made unclean Himself, Christ made this poor woman instantly clean and healed her of her disease. But Jesus was on the way to raise Jairus' daughter from her deathbed. Touching a dead body also made a person unclean, but Jesus took the little girl's hand, told her to arise, and she did. Rather than being made unclean Himself, our Jesus raised her from the dead. The One who made all things and gives all things life, our Creator, our Redeemer, could not be paralyzed into inaction by a little case of leprosy or a little blood, or even by death itself. By His power, He makes clean what was polluted, makes whole what was diseased, and makes alive what was dead. But this power of Christ went far further than healing physical pollution. Our King Jesus could not be rendered impure by His association with sinners. He could not be tempted to sin or fall into sin. 
The Pharisees were incensed when Jesus received sinners and ate with them. They believed that to do so somehow made him morally and spiritually polluted. They believed that their good deeds and scrupulous separation from sin made them superior to the rest of society. But Jesus rebuked them by referring to the duty and work of a physician. Sick people need a physician, not those who are well. Christ said, I am come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here we come to the greatest power and work of Christ. His people's sin could never pollute Him or make Him morally impure. On the contrary, Jesus takes away His people's sin. Some might object that when our sins were laid upon Jesus, surely that rendered Him morally impure somehow. I've actually argued with people about this who say that our sins could never be imputed to Christ while that would render Him unpure and a sinner. After all, Paul wrote that Christ who knew no sin was made sin for us. Our sin was indeed laid upon Jesus. Our sin was imputed to Christ. and He was treated and judged as guilty in our place by God on the cross. But Jesus was never morally polluted by our sin. That's because unlike King Saul, Jesus never participated with us in committing any of our sin. While Christ bore our sin in His own body on the cross, Jesus never did sin in Himself. He was guilty of our sin by imputation, but He never was a sinner. And notice this great difference. Saul and his people were entangled in their sin and dragged each other down into degradation and guilt and shame. What did Paul conclude, though, about the case of Jesus in our sin? That Jesus was made sin in our place so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Christ's association with our sin at Calvary not only did not drag Him down into moral pollution with His people, but rather He made His people righteousness in Him. Rather than spreading around the depravity and moral shame, Jesus has cleansed His people of their sin and laid upon them His own righteousness in place of their shame and dishonor. Jesus paid the sin debt for His people The same transformative power of Christ bearing our sins at Calvary is described by Peter, and the consequence is that we are now dead to sins and alive unto righteousness. All this was foretold by Isaiah the prophet when he described how God laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all. It pleased God to crush His own Son in death for our crimes, to make His soul an offering for our sin. God is satisfied with the sin offering that Christ made for us. His justice against our sin is fulfilled and completed by Christ's death for our sins. God's Lamb has taken away our sins. No wonder the psalmist said of Christ that God did not despise or count as nothing the afflictions of the afflicted Jesus. Rather, God holds Christ's work of redemption in the highest regard, and it is precious to Him. That's because it satisfied God for the saving of His beloved sinful people. Here is a marked difference. Saul sinned and was destroyed because of it, and he was rejected as king by God. But Jesus taking away His people's sin at Calvary is entirely acceptable to God and well pleases Him. Indeed, Paul writes that Christ's offering for our sin is a sweet-smelling savor unto God. And because of that, Christ is highly exalted by God 
as our king. Saul's pollution by sin did no good for his people, and God removed him as king. Christ's punishment for our sins laid upon him, saved his people forever, and God has confirmed Christ as our good King Jesus for all eternity. But now in our study we reach the point where Saul descends into madness. And we read this morning, 1 Samuel 16, a large portion of it. At 1 Samuel 16, at verse 14, the Scriptures tell us, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from the Lord troubleth thee. Is this not entirely appropriate? that God should remove the Holy Ghost from Saul? Saul who would not listen to or obey the Spirit of God? And that God should give unto Saul, as it were the desire of his heart, an evil spirit that would go along with and provoke Saul into unrighteousness, foolishness, paranoia, and shame. He would not obey the Holy Ghost. Now, some people might be concerned that it says that the evil spirit was sent from the Lord, but there are other places in Scripture where the same idea is described. God takes credit for this wicked spirit that came into Saul and disturbed him, and it is part of God's judgment against Saul for his disobedience. He had the Holy Ghost with him, which meant he was most blessed. And this was, of course, different from what we have today with the Spirit indwelling believers. This was a out-of-the-ordinary influence, shall we say, of the Spirit of God upon a person. And it was given for a purpose of divine service to give strength and wisdom to the person to do God's will, oftentimes for the good of God's people. But now here, he has lost the Holy Spirit and has been entered into by an evil spirit from the Lord which disturbed him. And then at verse 16 we read, the people's suggestion, his courtier's suggestion, let our Lord now command his servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And of course, this is a common theme in the history and culture of mankind, that the gentle playing of some peaceful-type instrument of music can calm and soothe the troubled heart. Some places it's flutes, other places it's harps, perhaps the dulcet sounds of a piano, not playing any Beethoven now, but playing something soothing and calming, Even flutes are used to mesmerize evil, wicked snakes, aren't they? According to certain traditions. So they go out and they find David, the shepherd boy, who by all reports is a good harp player and also a fine upstanding fellow. And so they bring him in. David came to Saul at verse 21, stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. David, even at this young age, was brave and stout-hearted. Saul, the king, loved him. Well, at first at least. 
And then verse 23, it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took an harp and played with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the evil spirit departed from him. But Saul has lost his bravery. He has lost his courage. He's become an afraid man because the Spirit of God is no longer with him. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that when Goliath, the giant, challenges the Lord's people and challenges the armies of Israel, what is Saul's response? What is Saul's response? Does he send out his greatest warriors to take on Goliath? Or does he go himself? No, at verse 11 of 1 Samuel 17 we read, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You remember the people wanted a king to lead them forth into battle and to be their champion. And now already Saul has fallen down on the job because of his sin and because the Lord has departed from him. But then David presents himself to fight Goliath because he is assured of God's blessing because Goliath has insulted and degraded the Lord of hosts. And we all know the story well, but at 1 Samuel 17, verse 32, we read this. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Now you see that Saul's depression, if you will, his loss of courage, now it becomes infectious and he starts to drag down the one whom the Lord sent to fight against this wicked giant who defied and defamed the name of the Lord. He tells him he's not strong enough to do something like that. But, of course, we know the story. David goes out and prevails against Goliath and slays him with a stone in a sling and then cuts his head off with his own sword and is completely victorious. And so the next stage in the descent of Saul into paranoia and madness is found in 1 Samuel 18 at verse 5. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. So here you see that Saul has become envious of David because now the people seem to like David a little bit more than they like their king. And you remember Saul was always careful to try to 
appease his people and to get them to support whatever he did and to follow after him. And now here is a potential rival. He apparently doesn't know that Samuel has already anointed David to be the new king over Israel when Saul is no longer king. And so he is displeased that someone else is getting more positive press than he is amongst the women. Presumably the the males were a little more circumspect in what they said about David versus what they said about Saul. They probably knew that it would just make him angry, make him set his sights on them as well as being possible David supporters and joiners into a usurpation now that Saul begins to develop this paranoia against his potential rival. The next thing Saul does is try to murder David. It goes downhill really fast. At verse 10, came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house and David played with his hand as at other times and there was a javelin in Saul's hand and Saul cast the javelin for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it and David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. So the solution that the government always has to possible rivals is to snuff them out. If you can't discredit them, then you can jail them. If you can't do that, then you can murder them. And here Saul has already got to that point where he's trying to murder poor David. But of course, he does it under the spirit of this evil spirit which the Lord has sent to him. And he does it at the very time that David is trying to help him to be soothed of his mental problems brought on by the troubling of this evil spirit. And then at verse 14, David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. The problem that Saul had with David was not so much that he was clumsy or malicious or deceitful, but rather that he was very wise, very prudent. He didn't ever put a foot wrong, did he? And that made him even more of a danger to Saul. At least Saul thought that it did. And then Saul plots to have the Philistines kill David at verse 17. Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Mirab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And notice that he's going to try to induce David to go out and fight valiant warfare against the Philistines and hope that the Philistines will kill David. And isn't it ironic and isn't it tragic that David pulled the same stunt with Uriah the Hittite after he had made Uriah's wife pregnant by committing adultery with her while Uriah was out fighting. Remember he told Joab, put Uriah in the worst heat of the battle and then withdraw from him that he might be slain. And Joab did so and Uriah was slain. But the Scriptures teach that David was guilty of murder when he did that. And here Saul is trying to do the same thing to poor David. And verse 21 of First Samuel 18, Saul said, I will give him her, that is Michael, 
they've swapped out girlfriends now. I will give him to her that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in the one of the twain. So the scheme Saul hatched was to require David to bring Saul proof that he had slain 100 Philistines. And at verse 25b, we read this, Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So David goes out and kills 200 Philistines. And he brings Saul the bloody trophies. And at verse 28, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. Now notice this, that Saul has now maneuvered himself into being David's father-in-law. Now David is Saul's son-in-law. And now he is become his enemy continually. He's brought his rival into the family as it were, but that doesn't satisfy him. Now he's perpetually at war in his heart against little David. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 19, we read this, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. So he's commanded his associates, his inner circle, including his son, to kill David. And of course, they all refuse to do this because they think David is proper and loyal and brave and an asset to the kingdom and has done nothing wrong. But Saul is insistent. And then a few verses later, when Jonathan, Saul's son, who's a friend of David, speaks up for David before his father, we read in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 19, Jonathan spoke good of David unto Saul his father and said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee were very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it and didst rejoice. Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan showed him all those things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul. He was in his presence as in times past. So here we see that Saul is still in a position where he can be spoken sense to and understand it and comply for a moment. But it doesn't last long, does it? doesn't last long because... Saul is continually provoked by this evil spirit and backslides into his paranoia and delusion and hatred of David. At 1 Samuel 19, at verse 8, we read this, There was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew with them a great slaughter, and they fled from him. But the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand, and Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence. And he smote the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped 
that night. And Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. Saul was so crazy mad at David at this point that he staked out his residence with assassins to slay David if he went into his own house. But then David's wife, who's one of Saul's daughters, she tells the people that come to inquire for David that he's sick. He's in bed sick. And meanwhile, David, of course, has absconded somewhere. So Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. So if none of his people were willing to smite a sick man in his bed, Unto death, Saul was certainly had no such scruples. She said, Well, just bring him to me and I'll kill him. Bring him to me in his own sick bed and I'll kill him. Saul's pursuit then turns into a farce because David has escaped. His own daughter has betrayed Saul, or, or so Saul thinks. She should have betrayed her own husband to her crazy father, the king. Saul sends out search parties to find David. And they finally locate him, and so Saul goes in hot pursuit. And it turns out that Saul ends up at a place where Samuel is standing and talking and teaching the prophets of the land. And Saul shows up there after he's hopped, skipped, and jumped from one place to another as he goes to one place and gets word, and oh, they've gone over here now, and oh, they've gone over there now. And so at verse 23, we read this, And he went thither to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also, that is, upon Saul. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah, and he stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Wherefore they say, Is Saul also among the prophets. Now you can see the insanity that has descended upon Saul. That he now has lost his modesty and the social mores that he should have followed after. And he is really, really in a bad shape. But of course, this is the Lord's judgment against him for trying to pursue David and to murder David. But then we begin to see even more paranoia exhibited by Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 20. After this little slight that takes place at one of the feasts where David goes home to visit with his family instead of coming to the king's feast, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, his son. And he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What hath he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, did eat no meat the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. 
Now, of course, anybody that tries to talk to Saul, talk Saul down off of his ledge, tries to reason with Saul, tries to point out that there is no just cause to kill David because David has not done anything amiss. Now, those persons, you see, are incorporated into Saul's paranoia. And notice the issue is the security of the kingdom in Saul's house. That's the way Saul sees it. David is going to be a usurper and my kingdom and my son's kingdom will not be secure so long as David is alive. But then, of course, when Jonathan disagrees with him, why he strikes out against his own heir, that is Jonathan, and tries to kill him also. We see at verse 8 of 1 Samuel 22, Saul is complaining, all of you have conspired against me. And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you that is sorry for me or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So now he's accusing Jonathan of being the orchestrator of some conspiracy in which he has induced David to murder Saul. And all of this, of course, is just delusion on Saul's part. There's nothing of substance to it. But he found out that when David fled to save his own life, that he had interacted with one of the priests, and the priest had innocently helped David along the way because David told him he was on the king's business. And when Saul finds out this, Saul sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, they came all of them to the king, and Saul said, Here now, thou son of a high tub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day? Of course, David wasn't lying in wait. David was hiding in self-defense. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house? Did I not begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father, for thy servant knew nothing of any of this, less or more. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. You see, Saul cannot be reasoned with. He will not accept any alibis or protests of innocence. He's bound and determined to seek his revenge against the people whom he paranoidly thinks are plotting against him. And so it goes... And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. Think of the monstrous crime that Saul is about to commit to slay a whole branch of the Lord's priesthood based on false accusations, paranoid delusions, 
on the part of the king. And the king turned to Doeg, who was an Edomite, had no loyalty or fear of God's priests. Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and he fell upon the priests and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings and oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. Notice that Saul was more alert and desirous to completely destroy the priests of the Lord than he had been to destroy the wicked people and rulers of Amalek. You see, when he wanted to completely destroy his enemies, he had the power and the will to do it. But not when the Lord commanded it, only when the Lord forbade it, as of course was this atrocious genocide that Saul took against an innocent priesthood. We know that as the story comes to a conclusion, David spares Saul repeatedly. He would sneak up on Saul or Saul would accidentally enter a cave in which David had hidden himself and Saul would be in his power and David's men would say, you need to strike the king now and David would refuse because he was the Lord's anointed. And then he would revealed to Saul in in the front of all those people that he had spared his life as as a demonstration that David meant him no harm whatsoever. And you remember there are at least two instances of this. We find one in 1 Samuel 24 at verse 14 where David has confronted Saul with this and He says, After whom is the king of Israel come out? Against whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and thee, and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. It came to pass when David had made an end of speaking. These words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I. For thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, inasmuch as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. And if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand, Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. So Saul was completely clear-headed on some occasions, but most of the time he reverted back to his false allegations and hatred and envy and fear of David. And then another time in 1 Samuel 26, David once again spares Saul's life. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel is come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly." 
And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered thee into my hand today. But I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord. Let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. But in the end, of course, we all know the tragic tale. Saul finally was destroyed. In 1 Samuel 28, verse 5, when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. Then said Saul to his servant, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. We call this woman the witch of Endor. Saul allegedly had wiped out all the witches in Israel according to the commandment of the Lord in the law. But now in the end, when he's completely forsaken by God and God will not hear his prayers or tell him what the end is to be or answer any of his questions, Saul resorts to this witch. Now, the witch calls up the spirit of Samuel. And it appears that it really is the spirit of Samuel And of course, none of us understand how any of that can work. That's okay. It says that it's Samuel that's speaking to him. At verse 16, then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee and has become thine enemy? And the Lord hath done to him as he spake by me. For the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor, even to David because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. The next day, of course, Saul is slain, and Israel is routed. 1 Samuel 31 at verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. The Philistines followed hard after Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men that same day together. And thus ended the sad reign of Saul. And have you ever wondered what would have happened if Saul had set aside his paranoia and his grasp of the kingdom 
He could have gone to David. He could have gone to David that night before. He could have flown to David and surrendered his kingdom and knelt and sworn his allegiance to David and sought his protection. And one has little doubt to believe that if he had done so, the Lord would have blessed David and would have protected David and protected the nation. And there could have been a great victory. But apparently that never crossed Saul's mind because all the way to the end, you see, he was willing to lie. He was willing to murder. He was willing to consort with witches before he would surrender his grasp upon his kingdom, which he loved. And note that at the beginning of this sad tale, Saul never wanted to be king. Remember how humble he was. He had to be searched out amongst the luggage. But very soon the power went to his head. He turned from obedience to the law and to God and sought to appease the people in their sin to win them over by religious theater. And when the evil spirit disturbed him, he started to attack the very people who supported him and tried to help him with his disability. He became envious, he became paranoid, and then he became murderous. He tried to kill David, he tried to kill his own son, and he slew a large number of the Lord's priests. And then he wondered why God wouldn't answer his prayers or hear him or support him in any way. And then he turned to witchcraft. And this reminds us that Samuel had told him that to rebel is as the sin of witchcraft. So he begins by rebelling against God's commandment and sure enough, before it's over with, he has turned to witchcraft to try to save him. Note the root of Saul's sin, his grasping at the kingdom to stay in power, to preserve his legacy, to establish his dynasty. He became morally and spiritually broken. Now that does not mean that he did not do some good things. He did. He did some good things. He fought valiantly for Israel. He almost wiped out all the witches and so forth. But sometimes you see he seemed to grasp his sins and to repent at least for a while. But he always descended back further and further down into his paranoia and criminality. And one has to ask, can we not see similar behaviors in our institutions and our leaders? They are so set on holding on to power. They're so set in being in charge. They're so set in defeating their foes, real foes and imaginary foes, that they become irrational and foolish. And engage in hysterical finger-pointing, a flamboyance that is totally out of place, paranoia, law-breaking, all to hold on to power and to not let go. Need we say any more about who 
all this reminds us of. It's not just Trump, it's Nixon. You remember how he let his victory against the Democrats go to his head that he just had to beat them in the election in 1972 and he began to engage in a pattern of lawlessness and cover-ups and crimes and it all blew up in his face, didn't it? Of course, you know, we seen the same kind of conduct in Obama and Biden to a lesser degree. They all attack their opponents and do so further than the evidence or the actual conduct would ethically or morally allow. And they do it with law-breaking and abuses of power so they can keep on top in their reign. In their reign. What is it Lord Acton said? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The evil spirit that Saul received from the Lord merely exacerbates a man's sin nature and proclivity to disobey the commandments of God and we lose control of ourselves and find ourselves behaving in self-destructive ways. More to say on this the next Lord's Day. But the Lord Jesus dealt with the most extreme cases of demonic possession. We read this morning Mark chapter 9. At verse 17, one of the multitude answered him, Master, I have brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit. Wherever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spoke to thy disciples, they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered, that is, Jesus answered him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And his father said of a child, And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see that this man's faith was not nearly as strong as the leper that we spoke about last Lord's Day. Remember, the leper didn't say, if you can, you will make me clean. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. He had no question at all about Christ's power to cleanse him from leprosy. He only did not know the will of Christ in the matter. And Christ's response was, I will. Be thou clean. And he was healed completely. But this man, you see, he's not sure whether Jesus can help him or not. Because this case is really bad. This case is really bad. What has happened to his son? I think those are some of the saddest words in Scripture. If thou can help us. Perhaps they are the saddest. But the Lord Jesus' response is what? Verse 23, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe... All things are possible to them that believe. You see, the man asks, if you can, Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible. Note the proper attitude. Not the strength of our faith, but the power of Christ to save. That's the question, isn't it? Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You see, he he grabbed the hold of the very thread of promise which Christ made, which was that
that he could deliver his son if the father believed. And so he laid hold upon that thin thread with his weak faith. I believe, help thou mine unbelief. It is the power of Christ to save that's the key, not the power of our faith. To lay hold upon His promise is what we are told we must do. And the result here, of course, Jesus saw that the people came running together. He rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. And the truth of the matter is that only Jesus can save us from our foolish disobedience, from our fears, from our manias and paranoias, even from our demons. Only Jesus can save us. Not music artfully played, not psychiatric medications or psychiatrists. Only the power of Christ can relieve us of this mental disturbance that all mankind has, whether it be demons or just our own filthy, rotten sin natures and rebellion against God, whatever it is, only the power of Christ can save us. We can't save ourselves. We can't gin up enough belief in Christ to make ourselves whole in any way whatsoever. It is Jesus and Jesus only that can save poor, lost, helpless sinners. We must always be calling upon the Lord Jesus to deliver us in all things. To us, this deliverance is free of charge, isn't it? The leper was cleansed. The woman was cleansed. The dead people were raised from the grave. And this poor young man was freed from his demons. Free of charge. No charge at all on our part. But to the Savior, it cost him everything, doesn't it? Cost him his life. He had to lay down his life to save his people. And if he had not been intending to lay down his life to save his people, I don't believe he would have saved this young man from his demons. He laid down his life What does he say for his poor lost sheep? That's who he lays down his life. His poor helpless sheep that he might not lose a single one of us. You know, we call out. We must call out. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And when we shift our strength and our resources and our self-assuredness and self-righteousness, when we lay all that aside and shift all of our hope and reliance upon the dear, blessed Savior, praise God, He has all the power to save us from our sin, from our foolishness, from our weakness, from our paranoia, even from the demons themselves. Next Lord's Day, I hope to speak more on the subject of Christ and His mighty power to save from possession of this sort. But around this table, we think of the price Jesus paid 
to make it possible to save us from our sin. You know, it doesn't do any good to save people from demons per se if you do not cleanse them of their unrighteousness and save them. It only brings a temporary relief, doesn't it? But Jesus isn't satisfied with that. He will save His people to the uttermost. He will save His people unto everlasting life. But He did so by dying Himself in our place on the cross. And we celebrate it each Lord's Day with this bread and with this wine by which we picture and remember the actual body and blood of Jesus upon which all of our hope rests. He is our bread of life. He is our wine of life. He is the one who by His physical death in our place has given us salvation, glory, and joy forevermore. Well, let's give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son and in the sacrifice that He made to save His poor people. And we remark how He can save us from our own foolishness and our own lies that we tell ourselves and our own crimes and our own disobedience and even our own fears and demons. He can save. He will save His people from all of those things. But He laid down His life and His body was torn and mutilated for our crimes laid upon Him. We thank You for this bread that He left us to remind us of it all, to provoke in our hearts faith and courage and trust in the work of Christ to redeem us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And he said, take and eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 124 in the Black Book. The Holy One who knew no sin, God made Him sin for us. The Savior died our souls to win upon the shameful cross. His precious blood alone availed to wash our sins away through weakness he or hell prevailed through death. He won the day. Number 124.